If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Would you like to start us off? It's oh, your gosh. it's your debut, and so you oh, know. Yeah, thank you. you. Know, please do. Oh, yeah. this is um, it's very uh, daunting because I feel like I haven't read in person here for a long time, but also just in general. So I feel like I'm sort of a bit rusty, which is not the best way to start with your debut. But I actually also like the fact that um, I'm going in just as I am. I think it's good not to to be too polished. So yeah, I just want to thank you all for being here. And this is the first reading I'm doing from a book ever. Um, It's not a stack of paper that I printed in a rush (laughs) before running to get the central line. It's it's actually a book and it doesn't even feel real yet. You said it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time to sink in. Which is fine with me because life has been so quick recently. But um, yeah, thank you so much for being here. How about a round of encouragement? (laughs) Declaration. If sickness begins in the gut, if I live in the belly of the beast, if here at the heart of empire, if careful in the house of the host, If quiet at the hearth of the host, if here at the home of empire, if I live in the belly of the beast, let me beget sickness in its gut. Fifteen. With his hopscotch grid for a wrist, see my blue boy with a smile like a one-string guitar, relative to nobody, dropping out of school, out of line, saying, I love you more than life itself, in a first Valentine's card, during the term in which we turn 15. In the attic of an old phone now, here he is again, 
in the drawer I was emptying, during a hymn I was singing before I met him, and here he is, my sad boy. Now watch this older girl stop and throw her day out with the dust and turn blue too. This whole impermanence thing is deceptive, looks lifelong actually to me, still stuck here, molding mason jars of words to preserve him with, wondering if a poem 10 years on is still a pining, asking how many more I'll make, having learned at last how little of us keeps. Not quiet, as in quiet, but as in peaceful, as in slow to anger, as in shy, as in sulking or sullen, as in nice, as in clean, as in clean tree-lined streets, as in well-resourced libraries, as in good, outstanding schools, as in not much new, as in no news is good news, as in the war is over has been for decades now, as in early to bed, curled up with a book, as in the newborn is sleeping, as in TV barely audible, as in subtitles, as in subtext, as in someone should have said something, as in don't just do something, stand there, as in could and should but wouldn't, as in well, the British are so polite, as in placid, as in placated, as in nuanced, complicated, as in careful, it's a conflict, not a siege, a conflict, as in objective, as in both sides, as in well-behaved, as in safe, as in too quiet, as in almost silent, as in almost no sirens. This poem. Somewhere beneath this poem, is the one you sat down to write, locked into the hold of it, or running, shaded, through the leaves of this book, is the poem that escapes untouched by hands that know no tenderness. This poem is not that poem, not the one you traveled for. This poem is this poem you concede, the one that took your hand instead. And being here now, having journeyed already so far, you sit down with this poem to talk. And you are silent as you speak to the stories. You are silent as you listen to the stories it speaks of, which are not yours, though you are in them, though they contain you all the same. And when you write that other poem, the one you promised to me, still you hear this one's cruel whisperings as it floats in the air, as it lights on the shelf and waits there, watching, rubbing its hands like a fly. Um, I think I'll read... 
It's so weird having a book, honestly. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to read um, a poem called Death is Everywhere and Not Here, specifically because um, it's the fifth anniversary of Grenfell just yesterday or the day before. My brain is... Having a baby will mess you up, I'm telling you, in the best way. Don't know what day it is today, but um, yeah, it's the fifth anniversary and I wrote this poem five years ago um, and it began as two parts and the first part was written in the wake of a funeral of an uncle um, who I just hadn't seen for a while and all of a sudden um, Uncle Sandy was sick and then time passed and this was pre-pandemic so obviously there was no real reason why I shouldn't have been able to see this uncle again. Um, so it was in the wake of his funeral and coming home from that and then next thing you know something was on the television happening um, on a Tuesday night and the rest of the poem kind of came in the wake of that and the two somehow fitted quite well together, which I wasn't expecting. Um, so this is called Death is Everywhere and Not Here. Death is everywhere and not here. When the, when the happiest girl I know plays songs by a group called the Deep Throat Choir. And while the others at the bar can't stand it, but won't tell her to her face. I imagine telling strangers my new occupation, brazen and unfazed by the name of my band. These days, everything moves. The white hair I rip from my scalp at the middle parting turns out to be black at its root, meaning it changed its follicle mind for a whole centimeter or six weeks depending on who's counting. I, too, want space and time and second chances. I want to be useful and beautiful, but what did I do today except watch a tall building burn while the boy who once called it home phones the BBC, says, you know at least 500 people live in there. I didn't see 500 people leave, with a voice that implies this is a normal day for him. Death, I think it's you I face when a spider crosses my path in a place I thought was mine. Is it not you who turns overhead with no warning, declaring the night an open disco? There will always be more of you to kill or free. There will not always be mothers with brooms, fathers with cups or glasses. There will not always even be empty glasses. There will not always even be anyone. Only there will be you, death, and the silence and the shade as the audience traps breath to ask, is this it? Will the music play now? Will the credits roll before leaving the cinema? Eyes learning daylight again rebirthing the world, heads brimful in the interim of everything to do and nothing to be done.
read one more and then, yeah, we will come back to some poems at the end, I think. <clears throat> Whose name means honey. You are beautiful to me. You are beautiful to me. Across the table we have arrived at, in from the rain. No makeup on your face, but for the small, frail thread of something on your right cheek that I would like to remove for you. You whose name means honey. Every time you look up and still it is there, I would like to be the one who says, hold on, come here, let me, one minute, stay there, almost, there we go, all done, perfect. And when you look up, and now it is gone, swept absent-mindedly off the face of the earth by your dark hair, oh, I am sad to have missed my chance. Thank you. <laughs> All right, I suppose it's my turn now. Um, thank you, Victoria, for you. that wonderful reading. Um, so I, I, I thought I'd start by saying that um, this is, this is a book I thought I'd never write um, for, for various reasons. Um, I, I live in the US now, and, uh, but I lived here for 13 years. And I left to be with the love of my life, who's here tonight, um, and to whom the book is dedicated. So this is quite a, a treat. Um, and when we met and I moved over there, um, it was the, the 2016 election was was starting to loom on the horizon. And because of where we lived, uh, we, we felt that we saw the outcome a little in advance. Um, and so we felt, you know, let's, let's find somewhere um, interesting and relatively peaceful to live in. Um, and we headed out, it was a very American thing to do, I think. We packed what little we had into our car and drove out west. We are in New York at the time, drove out west to California. And we stopped, this is gonna sound like a bad country song, but um, we stopped in Amarillo, Texas, where uh, we, we went to see the Cadillac Ranch, which I don't know if any of you have seen it before, or have heard of it. It's a place where this you know, wonderfully demented genius decided to stick Cadillacs, as in the cars, head first into the ground, and then use them as canvases upon which to paint these wonderful paintings. And I remember being uh, at the Cadillac Ranch and watching this German family kitted out in these wonderful pink neon cowboy boots and leopard print cowboy hats. And I remember thinking, and they were just standing there looking so wonderfully happy and saying wunderbar and taking these pictures. And I remember thinking, note to self, don't write a book about the Southwest. So here's a book about the Southwest. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, and it's, it's a place that I've, I've grown to love. There's a quote in this book by Czeslo Milos, the Polish poet that says, I did not choose California, it was given to me, because it was this gift that was unexpected that um, ended up giving him a lot. He ended up spending half his life there. He's a great Californian poet, people don't think of him as such, but um, he is. And so I'll read you the, um, the title poem of the book, um, just to start us off. High Desert. Time to listen to my bones to seek a stillness known only to deserts. 
Pause, traveler, and behold this empire of absences. The snowy salt beds of vanished lakes, the outlines of decommissioned railroads, the petroglyphs of people murdered long ago, and all around nearly limitless stretches of cottonwood, willow, and mesquite tufting out of the sand. All day, I drive along mummified freeways, from Amboy to Zizix, and zip past Cadiz, Baghdad, and Siberia in under an hour's time. The ghost towns of America's Main Street, an unbroken montage of smokestacks, silhouettes of sidewalks, the boarded remains of small businesses. There is no better backdrop for the mirage of permanent boom times than the desert. A landscape where, despite claims to the contrary, no town was too tough to die. Once genocide had cleared the country, an extractionist lust was unleashed on the West. The blunt simplicity of place names, a shrine to the seeker's obsessions. Carbondale, Copperopolis, Oroville, Petrolia. Spartan mockeries of morals and models left behind and forgotten. Towns where the sheriffs robbed guns at trains at gunpoint or smuggled liquor across the border, only to blame it on the Mexicans. Next to no sign now of the old tribes, the trappers, the pioneers, yet no shortage of jackrabbit meth labs, tin cans, rusted lawn chairs, gas stations, and fall 50s diners. Dead or alive, Each one of these towns greets me with the same sign, the same four planks of wood. Name, date of establishment, elevation, and population. The latter always in the single or double digits. Exhausted, I lie down on the sand and warm my feet by the embers of this final frontier. And consider how strange it is that it's here, where after decades of rootlessness, I abandon all cravings for permanence. Um, I, I know this has been, I don't know if it actually made over in the news, but it's, it's something that I've been, because living in California, you, you have these news alerts set up for fire and anything that goes along with that. And um, recently, Lake Mead, which is by Hoover Dam on the border with Arizona and Nevada, the lake, uh, there's been such a lot of drought and fires nearby that Um, the lake level has dropped to the point that they're finding bodies uh, in oil drums, which is, you know, essentially the, the, the mafia of Las Vegas where they used to dump their bodies. And so now, because of the drought, they're able to see this gigantic graveyard before them. And I remember looking at this piece of news and thinking, that's, that's basically why I wrote the book, in a sense, because in the West, I don't know if, it, if it's the picturesque beauty of the Grand Canyon or the, the myths pumped out by Hollywood, Uh, the sort of the, the fake serenity of pro prompted by the landscape, but there's a lot of hidden histories, and I think just like those bodies, there's this history of, of labor struggles, of racial struggles that just absolutely get forgotten and completely desiccated, and it's and they're hard to find. And so, part of the point of writing this book was kind of digging them up um, without coming across too many mafia victims, hopefully. Um, so I thought I'd read one of the very first poems I wrote for the book. Uh, it's called Roadrunners. In the pink light, halos of cloud form over the mountains. Lightning two valleys away, 
Then, not an hour later, the explosion of thunder. The roadrunners packing for backcrumbs on the porch have long since fled into the endless ocean of grass. Driving in every direction down licks of red road, I have lost myself in a militarized topography. Everything named after army units, generals, scouts, miners, the Dragoon Mountains, Cochise Stronghold, defunct Gleason and Pierce, those weird rusty ghost towns, the only non-derelict structure for miles, the local school, its polished windows and well-kept lawn, a source of great local pride. No mountain monograms for these desiccated whistle stops. No giant Q or C or W in bright white paint to mark the township's still functional, sort of functional breathing. No carving for them into the planet's bark. And thus, they are blessed to me like no other. Every successful city is a flimsy affair of civility. It's eternalness, like Paris or Rome a slow march to desacralization. Make America great again. Buy real estate. Hail follows rain. Nearby, the township of Sunsites, once built as the safest spot to survive the inevitable nuclear winter, actually stopped Soviet Russia's list of high-priority targets. Enter the orange duck candidate, a haboob sweeps across the valley of the senile. And in a week, the mountains have switched from brown to purple to green. The desert is human endeavor's most fitting graveyard. The slow bleaching, the gradual eroding into sand, the heat stifling sound as it leaps into the air. It can't happen here, but it always does. The, the poem I wanted to read next um, was the most unexpected poem of the book. Um, it's the only time I've ever collaborated with an artist, and it's with the, um, the uh, Yemeni visual artist Ali Ali, and um, who's usually based in Los Angeles. And um, she very kindly invited me to write a poem accompanying this series of artworks that she's she'd written in response to uh, the detention of families at the border, the separation. This is when, back in 2018, they caged kids on the border. And uh, one of the news clips that may have carried across was one of the Texas politicians, of course, it's always Texas, uh, saying, you know, they can't, it, it's not a real prison. They, we give them Xboxes inside the cages, and so it can't, be, it can't be real. And so this is a poem that I wrote in response to her artwork, which I would encourage you all to find. Her name is Alia Ali, and I dedicated the poem to her. Um, and the only thing I should probably mention before this is um, it references one of my favorite Arabic poets. I grew up in, in uh, the Middle East, and um, one of my favorite poets, Imrul Qais, is one of the great pre-Islamic poets. And unfortunately, he's mostly known for how he died rather than for his poetry, because uh, as so legend goes, he, uh, he made the mistake of falling in love with the Byzantine emperor's daughter. And so the emperor decided, fine, this happened. I'll let you slip away. And he gave him a beautiful you know, cloak as a present, as a parting gift. And later on, so the legend goes, Imbroil Qais, when he was halfway to going back home to his own kingdom, he puts the cloak on, it was poisoned, and so then he died. And so 
The first line of this poem is drawn from one of his great pre-Islamic poems. Uh, and he was known as the wandering king without a kingdom. So this is Ode to the Errant King. Stop, my friends, and we shall weep over the memory of a loved one, or thousands, or millions. Who can keep track anymore? Remember this, that the only oath a promised land keeps is to make you suffer. And these days, every blanket bestowed, every morsel of food, every mouthful of water is another buck in the bank. Long gone is the lamp that lit the golden door. There are only walls and chain link fences and mylar. Why mylar? Envision its sheen, the deceptive strength of that metalized film. Imagine it used for warmth in the cold damp of prisons. What do you see in its mirror-like surface, if not the face of a monster? What is a human observed through the slits of a cage? Can you still call them human? What is a great global city, a great country, whatever that is, without an island of tears, a terminal of surrender? What is life if not Imru's poison cloak, beautiful to behold and deadly to wear? Enduring wrongs endure, nothing changes. And so tell me why I still believe in the journey. Moving is hope and it shushes the mind and fills the heart with something other than fear. Mylar, Melanex, Hostafan, names that provide the illusion of comfort and safety, of guiltlessness. Is a prison still a prison if the inmates have Xboxes? What sadder use could there be for that foil and its interstellar potential? Whatever became of solar sails, whatever happened to us, Consider the border, any border. If a border is a war zone, then what do the insides of our consciences look like? Therein lies a barrenness to rival any desert, and soon that desert will drink what is left of the sea. Consider also the sky. Bloodthirsty Mars beckons. How far do you think we will travel before we rediscover our bond? How many rocks and stars shall we visit until we remember we're human? Um, I'll finish up with the last poem, um, which, like the book itself, is dedicated to my partner, Zinzi, and it's because she gave me the idea to write it, because um, I told her I knew there was something missing to the book, and she said, you need to write about the journey outside of the, the Southwest. And so this is a poem that, we, that I wrote after we left Los Angeles in the Southwest behind after six years there and moved up north. And our journey took us through the Central Valley, um, America's breadbasket, um, which is really quite a, a carnival machine of horrors in many ways um, because of the, largely the agricultural industry. Um, and so this is a poem that kind of wraps up the whole book. But um, yeah, I haven't read it too many times, but I'd, I'd like to read it tonight. And it's called Thule Fog, because that's the weather phenomenon that happens in the valley where this thick fog lands straight on the valley. And it's agriculturally beneficial, but causes a lot of harm along the way. Anyway, it's called Thule Fog. 
After five years of life in the desert, you drive north as the fog floats over the fields like a ghost or a frozen prayer. And rolling past Delano and Merced, you wonder, what does home mean to you now? Then the answer rises out of the cottony gloom. Home is a sleeping bag in a parking lot, a bedroll in a barn, a blanket laid down in a ditch, but never a right, never a certainty. The sun is lost, and everywhere the feeling that the party is over fills the air. The king tribe of traffic recedes, and a voice on the radio is singing, I'm vaccinated and I'm ready for love. <laughs> Care team members are busy assisting other callers. Your call is important to us and will be attended to shortly. If happy countries exist, I've yet to see one. And 47 nations later, my idiot heart still races at the sweet sound of wheels on the tracks. But for today and tomorrow and three years of yesterdays, I stay put, wrapped in a fog as dense as pea soup. What is fog? Fog is water when it dreams of granite, when it seeks the elusive safety of rock, a hologram projected by the Jew. Fog is a phantom bred by fire. It is the shape grief assumes, a metaphor for confusion. Fog is a hill in China where poets seek refuge from tyrants. Fog is the reaper that sits on the freeway at night to harvest its victims. A veil the sky casts over the valley to hide the raw wound that we feed on. Fog is the state of the markets. It is the love that I feel for my mother and the hate that clouds the mind of her son. Fog is a tune that you hear on the boardwalk as you experience some maundering fancy of going out with the tide, as Jack London put it. There's no escaping it. Part two. We flee the city and lose ourselves in its open-air graveyard. Call it the Zerbia. A chain of dry valleys, a maze of dirt roads, chicken wire, yucca trees, and piss yellow don't tread on me flags. It was the final act of the American homesteader. Death plots for the legionnaires of empire. Flatlining hamlets, named after lunatic flyboys, mystics, cult leaders, pedophiles, prospectors, and other assorted seekers of extraterrestrials. At dawn, a lone bugle rips through the rare, low desert mist. And like the old man said, blow, bugle, blow. And now, as the morning call of the covered wagons dies away, we bring you another story of loss and displacement. This is where I was orphaned, marooned, on Baja's foggy beaches, where my father washed up, broke and bereft, another mad captain spat out by the wrath of the sea. And no, mat no matter how many miles I devoured between Tecate and Taos, the fog never left me. I drove down country roads, exploring mining camps, chasing those embers of dead dreams all the way to the ocean. Nothing breaks your heart like a small western town. A few scruffy buildings all clustered together, cowed by the might of the land. The devout, frightened believers of a vengeful god. Space, the very space that one day will reclaim them. They sit here, patient, 
self-sufficient, irrelevant, waiting for that final exodus to put out the lights. At dusk, in a rented hovel a mile or two outside of town, some relief from the heat as the sky turns cobalt, then black, then filthy blue. A thin curl of smoke climbs out of the pit. Critters crawl close to the fire. Snakes slither out of their lairs. And all night long, the bugle call plays on repeat. Perhaps one day I'll stop hearing it. Thank you. Now it's just the two of us talking. Now, now we can do whatever we want. Yes, indeed. <laughs> You're all captive now. Yes, indeed. I, you know, we'll, we'll open this up to, to questions in just a moment. But um, I, so Victoria's book is one I, I very much appreciated. And um, it's one where I, I felt, you know, and thanks to, to John and Claire and the rest of the team for putting us together because I feel like there was a lot of common ground with the books. Um, and one of the, the things I loved also about the book, apart from the, the poems, obviously, was that suggested reading right at the back. Um, and I wondered if you could tell us a little about that, you know, because it's, it's still relatively unusual. I mean, it's something that I actually wanted to do for this book and put a suggested playlist at the end because there were so many songs that kind of helped inspire the poems. But I ended up not doing it, but you did. You ended up actually putting in a list of suggested reading. The book is quite clearly also fascinated with the concept of history, just like this one. So I'm curious, you know, what, what did you like, what did you really want to say with the book in terms of like the highest priorities? There's always so many mm. things that we want to say with these books, but mm -hmm. what fed the book? Like who inspired you? What, mm. what did you want to do with it? Yeah. I know. Thank you. Um, no. I, um, yeah, I mean, to start with the, the further reading list at the back, um, that's, that's definitely to do with. The, the meaning of the book and the sort of motor behind or like within the book. So the reading this is literally the last thing you see. Um, and also I had seen this done before. So yeah. it was something that um, I think Ray, I don't, don't know if I'm mistaken, but Ray, with your second book, um, I, I'd seen that. And then also Sarah here, so many poets in this room, that I'm just gonna, have, I'm gonna shout out. Um, Sarah, you had a playlist in your pamphlet and I really like, um, like I'm not even a Marvel fan, but you know how like at the end of like Marvel films, there's like another scene. <laughs> like I like the idea, <laughs> I like giving something else yeah. after the main thing is finished. Yeah, yeah. So that, okay, you have the book, but you also, have these bridges to go somewhere else or something else to think about that's not me. Um, and yeah. that is sort of like, you know, now you can go there or you could um, see something in this book perhaps after reading one of those other books that maybe you hadn't seen before. So for example, um, I had to begin that list with The Sovereignty of Quiet which is a book by um, a US-based scholar called Kevin Kwashi. And um, Kevin's work was introduced to me by a brilliant, brilliant DJ scholar called Lene Denise, who, is just, who just does the most incredible stuff with black diasporic music, whether it's jazz, whether it's techno, whether it's, um, I don't know, funky house, like South African house. Yeah. Um, what she does with these histories and how literature even kind of finds its way into music 
It's just incredible to me. And she introduced me to Kevin's work. And even though some of the poems in this book are, what year are we in now, 2022? 10 years old, a few of them are that old. I found that his work really gave me a framework for what I wanted to do and what I wanted to say. Another reason why the reading list is there at the back is to safeguard me because at the heart of this book, at the heart of naming it quiet is the sense of playing at the kind of struggle between inhabiting a selfhood that is racialized to be told to be quiet, but also racialized to be useful endlessly, to be in service endlessly. Yeah. And the imperative is always, therefore, to make one's being known or to be visible or to sometimes often deal with being hyper-visible. Yeah. But often there's an imperative to be quiet and just be useful, just shut up and be useful, like especially as a woman. Um, so there's a gendered, racialized aspect, which I think makes me question always, in a world that's asking me to be quiet, what, what is the type of quiet that I am stealing yeah. for myself? Yeah. It, and it's not, it's, it's not a manifesto, it's more of a meditation on that. Mm -hmm. And the reading list at the back, which includes Christina Sharp, it includes Tony Morrison, it includes Sadia Hartman, Jaina Brown, Black Utopias, listening to images, Tina Camp, Una Marson, who is, to me, such a quiet figure in the history of the BBC. This mm. woman who came over from Jamaica and became a really quite prominent person within the BBC over mm. here. But there's, I don't feel like she left much of herself mm. for us to sort of know about. Um, but her poems really struck me. Um, each of the people on this list, I feel, would help anyone who didn't understand this book. Yeah. So I had to kind of provide a list just, just to be like, if you don't get it, it's okay. Here are some other people who you might read and then you'll, you'll vibe with them and then you might come back to my work and you'll be like, okay, I, I see what, yeah. I see you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. so it's kind of, it's protective as well, but I did that. Because yeah. um, you just don't know what people will think. No one's in your head when you write a poem and then you, you have a book out and you don't know if anyone's gonna yeah. hear it like you heard it. So it was for me as well. Exactly. And yeah. it's quite generous as well because you know we, we never manage to put everything down in a book. Right? No. There's always things you leave mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a nice generosity to that in going, well, here's the expanded awareness that kind of fueled the book mm -hmm. and then you're, give, you're leaving people a bit of a trail. You know? Yeah, a bit of a, yeah. Uh, like showing your, I feel like yeah. I, really, I, do, I really respect artists who aren't afraid to show their working. Yeah. I don't need to be a genius. There are things in this book which <laughs> I don't think are perfect. Working with Matthew Hollis at Faber, there was, there was, there's a trio of poems in, in here that are sonnets. And then we were having like an editorial meeting and he said, oh, this one's got, this one's got 13 lines, not 14. And I was like, oh? <laughs> I was like, oh no, that's not a sonnet. But we just left it like that. So there are mistakes in here. Yeah. Um, but I respect it when, you know, artists sort of show they're working. Um, and also with your book, yeah. you, at the, in, the, in the sort of second to last section, you've got this sort of like a litany of different voices of different figures yeah. who kind of relate to that sort of eroded, rough and sort of jumbled together history of like the Southwest. And at the back, 
it, you, you tell us where you have, where you, where you sourced yeah. those things from, which I also find helpful, you know, and, and very generous. So, um, yeah, I wonder what your experience was like, particularly with, you know, showing that archival side. Yeah, actually, you know, it, it's funny. I, I, I didn't actually think there was a, a rec in a way, the, the note that I have at the back of mine is absolutely true. So the um, penultimate section of the book is called A People's History of the West. Mm. And it, it came out of this idea that I knew that even though I, I found myself unexpectedly in the Southwest and I was really engrossed by the histories mm. and what what I really, you know, this, this these landscapes and these past that, that I wanted to like unearth, mm. um, I realized I didn't want to keep writing poems where it was the lyric eye and it was just me being a tourist mm. essentially going around and exploring these histories. So for the first time ever, because I'd never, I'd always admired the form. Um, many of my friends had written them before, um, but I'd never written found poems at all. And so uh, in the midst of doing all this historical research for the book, I came across these fantastic texts and I decided to turn a lot of them into found poems. And so in the section, uh, People's History, you've got, you know, from Pablo Tak, who was a native Californian, just as the, the mission fathers are kind of wiping that culture out to Mary Ellen Pleasant, who was like the first black millionaire of the West, um, who funded a lot of abolitionist movements, and then all the way up to um, a Californian. The Californians pretend was never a Californian in the first place, Richard Nixon, because they're, they think they're so progressive these days that they go, no, Richard Nixon, he was from back east. He's got nothing to do with us. And so I ended up going through these speeches and, and biographies and letters and and weaving them together into found poems because I wanted them to have their own voice essentially. Mm. And also because they were voicing stories that I really, I don't, I didn't feel like I was able to tell myself, mm, frankly, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? And so it became this like um, kaleidoscope of yeah. histories, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. But, yeah, yeah, completely, completely. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I definitely, um, it's, I relate to that sense of like having someone else say it um, because I, um, in writing this, also, again, to sort of offer the reader who is a stranger to me a sense of, okay, what's actually going on here? Yeah. And let, let Toni Morrison say what's going on here. You know, let her say, girl, I've got my mind and what goes on in it, which is to say I've got me. Like, that yeah. to me is, I would tattoo, that. I would literally tattoo that. <laughs> like, um, or to let, um, you know, someone else, like, let Kevin say it, let Audrey Lord say it, um, because it's... It's not a competition. It's it's kind of like we are all here together, and what I'm saying is is not new. I haven't yeah. invented anything. I've just added to the conversation that existed before I was born, even. So um, yeah, I think it's. I really agree with letting other people yeah. say the thing. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Earlier, we were talking about how to, how to frame this, this whole event, and mm. we thought we'd read for a while, chat for a bit, but then I thought we'd just, you know, before we open it up to you, just read one last poem each. Mm-hmm. And the opening poem to the book, apart from the, the, um, the, the very, very first one, but um, over here, Revision, mm-hmm. I wondered if you be happy to read like mm-hmm. one or two of the sections or maybe the whole thing? Yeah. You'd yeah. oblige us? Of course. Oh. That's actually one of the really old ones that is probably from, no, seven years ago. <laughs> but it's, yeah. it's a great way to start the book. I think. Thank yeah. you. You'll see why in a minute. Okay. Revision. One, consider... From the 1400s, the area later known as the Gold Coast would be, choose one, discovered, invaded, visited, landed upon by Europeans, illegal aliens, migrant workers, tourists, Christians, hailing from the ports of Sweden, Denmark, England, the Netherlands, Portugal, Prussia, during their visit, residency, occupation, sabbatical, stay, they would alter irreversibly the ecology, lives, speech, God's memory of the homo sapiens, natives, people, fauna inhabiting the land. It is not clear what their expectations were. One could assume they were successful, even after completing, losing, leaving, tiring of the project and going home. It is arguable that they did not actually leave. Two, compare. A, onion, sabolai, hint, Cebola, B, Chale, Charlie, Hint, Fam, C, Hint, Waterbird, Duck, Doko Doko, D, Lala, Hint, Lala, Song, Three, Consolidate. In the year of our Lord, 1471, they came. In the year of our Lord, 2017, I look for my language, still finding in it their hairs. Four, conclude. Oh, Chale, I stayed in Portugal for a year and loved it, loved it, more than England fam, patriot who, water off a duck's back, two colonizers, One with better weather, what's the problem? The people were happy. 
It was hot. I stayed in Bunyao. I'd go to the market and buy vegetables and come back to the apartment and make rice and stew. I do that when I want to feel at home. I like to think that I can bring home with me. And you know I can't speak Ga, but our word for onion is cebolai, right? And the Portuguese word for onion, cebola, cebola. I love it. I love it and I hate it. And this year it happened again, this very January. Mum played me a video of grandma singing a folk tune. And she told me that the word for song in Ga is lala. Lala, as in deck the halls with bows of holly. Fala la la la, can you believe that? And I was so happy to see grandma so alive singing all these words of which I understand nothing. See her clapping, all nearly 100 and fully bat blind years of her. And even mum didn't know the story. She just translated the outline to me, which I don't remember now. But the whole time I could only stand there. I was just watching and thinking, damn, this lala feels sad. This one lala sounds like a sorry song. Thank you. <laughs> I love that poem. Thank you. I really do. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Would you like to read one more as well? I would. I have a lot of I've dog-eared a few here, and I'm going to see if I can choose one. Um, let's see. I love this one actually, and. Yeah. yeah. But, Ray, I'm going to shout you out again. There's a poem of yours that I was like, ah, you'll know which one I mean. It's called Welcome to America. Yeah. And I, I wonder if you could read that for us. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so um, the original title to this was What the Immigration Officer Told Me, which probably was more explicative. But um, yeah. So uh, welcome to America. Let's start again from the top. Nothing you told me sounds true. I've looked at your passport and there are too many stamps. What kind of man calls himself cosmopolitan? You're ruthless and dangerous. I've printed out your poems and essays and I want an answer right now. What are you doing here? Love isn't a reason and neither is wanderlust. Why would she want you? Can you make enough money? I like thrillers and mysteries and plots with a point. Look around you. We're filled to capacity. This country is too generous. You see that old man in the wheelchair? He's been here for days, and you'll be here longer. Nobody reads anymore anyways. I'm late for lunch as it is, and if it was up to me, I would send you straight back. <laughs> We hand it over to you. Uh, I read that last poem. Uh, I liked that last poem that you read very, very much. Uh, in particular, well, one of the th I liked many things about it, but one of the things I liked about it was the way just by, you made it very clear the actual connections between words in different languages and the way we kind of inherit different meanings to 
similar words slightly changed through language um, and I thought that was done very beautifully and I don't know if you had to sit down and work at that or if that poem came I mean all poems take work but if that poem came kind of formed or did you have to chip it away at it mm. for quite a while mm. it's very evocative I really liked it very much oh, thank you um, that is actually one of the poems from a few years back that I put together to a deadline and I had I think because I remember sitting up quite late through the night to finish it that it really did come quite quickly um, which is always strange to me because I don't depend on that happening ever I don't I think one thing that I struggle with is that well not so much struggle with but there's always a feeling that after each poem I don't know if there'll be another one and this is a poem that came under extreme pressure, but contained a lot of stuff that I had been reading and studying. I think at the time I had, I had, I was still studying post-colonial studies. I was still doing that MA. So it, so my brain was rich with stuff that went into the poem. But the poem itself kind of came quite quickly, um, and then it, it had a particular form. The order has changed. The order is the biggest thing to have changed, and the two central parts part one, no, part two and part three just switched places when they came into this book, but everything else with it is more or less the same. Oh, thank you both. It was wonderful to hear them. Um, I wonder if you could maybe talk a bit about the structuring of your book. Um, I'm less familiar with Andre's at the moment, um, um, but like Victoria, I know yours has quite an interesting way that you envisage the structure, so maybe you could talk more. Again, I think there was an, you know what, I'm just realising I work well under pressure and I'm not sure how I feel about that because it's very stressful. Um, but there was an element of uh, time constraint with this book because I, um, in fact, Lavinia, when you first contacted me about, you know, send us some work at some point if I like, and I was like, really? Um, I didn't have a book yet. I, I I'd only just about had a concept um, and so I think when I joined with Faber and had a, a, a date which was more or less um, a year from joining by which to submit a, a full first draft um, I thought I don't have a book yet but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make one and um, but I had an idea and I do think that is the most important thing and so to help myself not panic I with that idea of quiet and the interior of the self and the self that we keep to ourselves and don't offer up uh, for sale to the world, I thought, okay, think about a house. So the book has sections. The first section is a door, a key. The next section is room of conditions and refusals. The next section is, which is just two poems, a seal, a key putting something behind you and, un and unlocking another section, which is interiors. Um, and then the final section of the, well, there's another, there's a seal, a door. And then um, the final section is a night garden of yes and dreaming. And so I, I created a structure to, to help my brain move through the, the sense of what I was trying to build. Um, and I found it very helpful because it matched the ethos of the book. Um, and I felt that, again, I think you mentioned like the lyric I, 
and what you did in your section at, at the penultimate part of the book, handing it over to other people's words. I kind of do that a lot in the, in the last section of this book because I didn't want to stay in just me, 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 me all the way through. I wanted to move from I, which is almost the first word, not quite, but nearly the first word in the book, to, to you, which is the last word of the book. So I think that structure kind of actually did give me a sense of movement. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I think there's a lot of, I think a lot of poets probably fear the lyric. Um, so I, yeah, that was the structure. I like that actually, moving from I to you yeah. through the course of the book. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, you know, I, I think what happened was I, I wrote all the poems um, first and then decided how to structure them. I think that was, that was the most difficult part. Um, and I, I was always at a loss as to how to, to organize them effectively, really. Um, but I, I think that there was, there was this idea I had that I think that because the West has, you know, it still is seen as this final frontier of, of the American project. And that's why I think, you know, all the, the droughts that are happening, essentially, it's, it's bad urban planning. It's bad state policies when it comes to forestry or war, water conservation. And so I knew that when it came to writing about the Southwest, there were going to be lots of voices that had never got, been given their, their fair due. Um, and, and also there were topics that really lay outside of my consciousness. Like, I, for example, I knew that I wanted to write about the Tulsa race massacre, but at the same time, I knew that there were a lot of texts that were freely available, but didn't get that much attention. So one of the, um, it's actually a, a great connection that I had when I finished the book was I was talking to my, my partner's father, my father-in-law. And, um, and he mentioned the great historian, John Hope Franklin, who wrote quite a lot about the Southwest. He's part Chicktaw, part African-American. And um, one of the found poems in the book, and this is why we started talking about it, um, was written by his father because he was a lawyer who was present at the Tulsa Race Massacre and wrote about it basically from his third floor office window. And so these are texts that are available out there. And I feel like these days there's such a surfeit of information, but the question really becomes, how do we keep that information current? Who gets to talk about it? How do you edit it? How do you put it out there? How do you present it? And so I wanted to play around with notions of that, you know, kind of really get outside of my own head for a change. Because um, I think I've always had a bit of an autobiographical project at the heart of what I do, but I think that whole notion of confessionalism as catharsis has no interest for me whatsoever. I actually like what Victoria said. I think, in a way, a good poker poem should have that progression from I to you. That's what poetry is about, right? You, you, you write poems to communicate with someone. You don't write them for yourself. Every time you hear someone say, I write them for myself or for the drawer, it's not true. It isn't. It, it never is. It never is. It, you're always trying to communicate to someone. There's always an other, you know? And as a writer, you have to write, you always write about someone else. And I think these days there's been a lot of rightly debate about who gets to write about what stories because so much bad writing has been put out there. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so that was, that was my way of circumventing or you know, adapting all, to all these various ideas, you know, trying to find different modalities of talking about the same kind of monolithic subject, you know, so that was, yeah. yeah. And one last uh, question from over here. Yeah. 
Hello. I wanted to ask Victoria about playfulness as a political strategy. Um, the beginning of the book, I loved your explanation of the rooms because that, that helped me understand the feeling of safety that I got in a hostile environment because the beginning really sets up the hostile environment through the school, through the sort of colonial history. But then you get both sort of subtle and delicate and also very playful at the end. And I just wanted to ask you about the sort of playful poems, kind of reclaiming that right to be playful mm. in the Toby poems, etc. because we can only be playful when we're whole. Mm. And I just, I wondered if that was in your thoughts mm. as you wrote them. Yeah, thank you. That's such a nice question. Um, about the importance of playfulness. Um, I think, um, so yeah, there's a poem that um, is in the interiors section, so right in the heart of the book called Toby, which is a poem very much about my cat. Um, my cat's having a hard time at the moment because I think he feels like he's been replaced by a baby and he's not that keen on the on the baby right now he just sort of stares across the room at it but um i i think that what you've said alice is so important because if there isn't time to like the body has to relax in order to play and for in order in order for um a child to play there has to be boundaries there have to be boundaries in place there has to be security there has to be like that kind of like padded space the walls need to be soft to bounce off of <laughs> therefore there do need to be some walls somewhere um and i and it, i definitely think that um play is where ideas come from they're, they're, it's a play it's a mental space it's a psychological uh state in which ideas can arise which do not fit the structures that we have been forced to live inside. Um, I don't believe that we are going to sort out what's happening in the world, whether it's the literal hostile environment that we are seeing right now, um, stopping planes from taking off to Rwanda. Like, I don't think that the situation that we're in collectively is going to be solved in the same way that it's been caused. There's going to have to be some ingenuity. There's going to have to be some dreaming. There's going to have to be some visioning happening, but that can't happen if people don't have basic needs met in order to relax for the body to then do something it hasn't done before, which is what I was seeing my cat doing um, to write that poem where it was, you know, this cat was just leaping around the garden at something I couldn't see. And I knew that even though I can't see it, I know he caught it. And that was nuts to me because it's the accuracy of this is a happy animal um, and thinking, what's my version of that? Do I have that level of freedom? Do I have that level of um, efficiency and that level of abandon and knowing I, I don't have that? Um, but yeah, so I, I think play is is important for writing because I think we poets can be quite serious folk sometimes. <laughs> Um, there's always a discourse going on on Twitter. Um, a lot of it is worthy. A lot of it is, you know, probably not that worthy. But I think play is helpful um, and helps me to write without the fear of, is this your last poem? So, yeah. I wonder, I wonder what it's like for you. Because I think your poems, I think this is actually a really serious and playful book. It's, it's both. 
there's yeah. playfulness in there. There's and and I think you play um, quite early on with the idea of um, oh, it's a poem where you really you you revoke the idea of secure belonging in a playful way. That's the best way yeah. I can sum it up. Yeah. 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 No, I I think that um, because this was an unexpected book, I think. Play kind of did enter the equation because it, it was a. Uh, I meant what I said at the beginning. I know uh, my grandfather, whom I hated for very good reasons, uh, loved <laughs> westerns, and because he was Italian, he loved spaghetti westerns. And so, and I wrote a poem describing how horrible he is in the book called Spaghetti Westerns. It's kind of my revenge on him, but um, uh, however feeble that is in many ways. But um, it, because it was an unexpected book, I felt like that's why I had to play around the material. I think that's where the idea of doing the found poems came from, mm -hmm. you know, where I, I wanted to almost, it was, it, it, you know, I, I wonder if a lot of people here would be familiar with it. I bet you are. The Spoon River Anthology, you know, the community comes through in many voices. And that's what I kind of wanted to resurrect. Edgar Lee Masters, just fantastic book. Um, and, and I wanted to, yeah, play around with that. I think that that was... It, because California was a gift to me, I wanted to give the gift back in a weird way, although that sounds very grandiose. Um, but that was, that was the idea, that was the, the mission. So, uh, That's nice. Uh, That's nice. Uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you so much, Andre. Thank you so much, Victoria. That was, that was all marvellous. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.